Welcome to episode six of Ask Paul Kirtley. In this show, we're gonna talk about what my aspirations are with respect to bushcraft, what I want to achieve, but also what I'd like to help other people achieve through, through my work. We're gonna talk about the blood vein, we're gonna talk about bivy tents, we're gonna talk about the weather and how to minimize the chances of it catching us out. And we're also gonna talk about camping, where we can go, where we can camp, where we can have a fire, and how to make sure we preserve that privilege for ourselves and for generations going forwards. Welcome, welcome to episode six of Ask Paul Kirtley. Let's have the first question. Ryan asks, do you have any bushcraft goals or skills that you still need to hone? Well, Ryan, that's an absolutely fantastic question. It's probably one of the best questions I've had yet on Ask Paul Kirtley. Um, first off, let me say that you always need to hone your skills. You always need to keep them sharp. Many of the skills that we put under the umbrella of bushcraft are perishable skills, whether it's uh, carving skills or tracking skills or tree and plant identification. Um, all of those things over time, if you don't use them, they'll diminish. Um, your ability to spot sign when you're tracking will diminish. Your knowledge of the trees and plants will become a little fuzzy around the edges at first. And then over time, you'll, you'll only know the real core and the same with your carving skills any any skill that requires some manual dexterity and practice you need to keep uh, you need keep practicing it um, similarly with um, you know even if you include things like shooting um, hunting in that skill set um, unless you practice your marksmanship over time your skill isn't going to be as sharp as it is if you're practicing on a regular basis so any of these physical skills anything that requires you to have a good level of knowledge you need to keep it up and the best way is to go out and use it so practice in a systematic way to gain the skills and then you don't need to practice as often clearly as you do when you're learning to get to a, to a level but you need to go into maintenance mode where you are honing skills on a regular basis to keep them sharp just as you do with your knife you don't use you don't get your knife really sharp and then never sharpen it again you need to keep doing that on an ongoing basis to maintain that sharpness of your knife so that's the first thing i would say the second thing i would say is that many people don't really have a very broad or deep view of what bushcraft is um, to a lot of people bushcraft is camping with a fire it's cooking a meal over a campfire it's sleeping out in a hammock it's uh, putting a tarp up as opposed to a tent that's all part of bushcraft, but there's a whole lot more there. And there's a lot more um, skill and subtlety in the art and craft of bushcraft than, than a lot of people give it credit for. Um, sure, you need some baseline skills, but beyond that, um, it's not really about kit. We've talked about this before in previous episodes. A lot of people get very obsessed about equipment and which knife and ax and this, that and the other. They're just tools. They're just things that you use. The real depth of knowledge comes from knowledge of the environment, knowledge of nature, and that takes a long time to get a good level, and it takes a long time to take it up to the next level. 
Um, and that's just for one environment. You know, if you look at hunter-gatherers, and there are not many hunter-gatherers left, um, listen to episode 10 of my podcast if you want to hear a little bit more about the Hadza, for example, and how they are the last uh, tribe of true hunter-gatherers in the whole of the African continent. Have a listen to that. It gives you some more perspective. It'll give you some more perspective on what bushcraft really means, what it really means to live from the land. And, and for me, people like the Hadza, people like the Inuit of old who were living off the land, they are a, a demonstrable show of what bushcraft really is. It's about that intimate knowledge of an environment, that adaptation, both in terms of skills and material culture, in terms of what you can make, whether it's bows and hand drills uh, in, in terms of the, the Hadza, or whether it's clothing and hunting equipment and kayaks in, in terms of the Inuit, and there are many other examples we could use. That is, to me, the epitome of bushcraft. It's not about which is the best knife and whether or not we should have O1 or stainless steel or which tarp or hammock you should buy. I'm sorry if I'm offending people by saying that, but that's got nothing to do with bushcraft. Bushcraft is knowing whether or not you can eat plants, whether or not which woods are best to use for friction fire lighting, which um, berries you can eat, which berries you can't, how to process them, how to preserve foods over the winter, how to make a bow, how to navigate by natural navigation. They're nothing to do with equipment, they're all to do with skill. And there are so many of those areas, there's so many spokes to that wheel that you can go down there's always something that you can be working on, even in your local environment. And one of my goals, not just in terms of personal learning, but also in terms of the knowledge that I share, is to encourage people to raise their game, to encourage people to look into things more deeply, not just know a couple of plants you can nibble on a hedgerow, but really go deeply into your wild foods and your foraging. Not just know how to find the North Star, but really go into depth, into how to navigate, um, understand how the motions of the stars throughout the night, how, uh, how that works, understand the motion of the sun, the motion of the sun through the different seasons. Um, again, another podcast. I talked to Tristan Gooley in an earlier podcast, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes. People can go really in depth and make a specialist career out of these areas. Never mind you having a good knowledge of all of these different spokes as an individual. Think about mycology, knowledge of fungi, think about knowledge of plants and botany, think about knowledge of and skill in carving and craft work. Um, there's, there's just a whole raft of things, and that's just in your local area. Think of all those areas that you could cover, all those things that you could do just where you're based. And then, again, for me, um, you know, even though I've got a good level of skill in many of those things in my area, there are, er there are things that I'm not particularly good at. I'm not particularly good at flint napping, for example. Um, and that, um, you know, I can do it a little bit. I've done it before, but I wouldn't call myself an expert. I certainly wouldn't presume to teach somebody how to nap flint. And this is an important point. Um, when you work as an instructor in anything, people assume that you have a high level of knowledge in every conceivable aspect of that area. And the problem with bushcraft is there is so much under that umbrella. As soon as, as, soon as somebody has the title bushcraft instructor or bushcraft expert, uh, whether that's self, uh, self uh, noted or whether somebody else has applied it, um, people think you're an expert in everything. But most people who are called bushcraft instructor 
are not an expert in everything. I'm not an expert in everything. I've got friends who are much better at making bows. I've got people I know who are much better at stalking and shooting. Um, I work with world-class tracking experts. I work with world-class canoeing experts. I'm good at those things and I have my areas that I'm particularly passionate about. I'm particularly passionate about tree and plant identification and wild food and foraging. I'm particularly passionate about natural navigation. I'm particularly passionate um, about woodcraft and carving and axe work. I'm particularly passionate about northern forest bushcraft and I've spent a lot of time working on those skills. Um, but there are other things, as I say, like flint napping. You, you know, if somebody says to me, um, can you teach me some flint napping? I'll say, no, go and speak to John Lord or go and speak to Will Lord. They will show you. Um, and you have to seek out the particular experts to get that high level of skill. Um, nobody can be an expert in everything, but you can strive to become better. So for me, one of the things I would like to get better at is flint napping. Also outside of my local patch as it were, the UK, Northern Europe, I'd like to spend more time learning about foraging and wild food strategies in the tropics. My knowledge of Northern Hemisphere plants is pretty good, but as I get towards the equator and certainly south of the equator, my knowledge isn't as good, certainly as Northern Temperate Zone and Northern uh, Forest and Boreal Zone. That, that's kind of my specialism, that's my specialist area. I would like to learn more about tropical plants, I would like to learn more about foraging um, for foods in those places and strategies for foraging year-round. I'd like to learn more about um, uh, foraging for, for seafood in, in, those, in those sort of tropical island environments. That's an area that I'm not so hot on, you know. Clearly all, of, all freshwater fish are edible, but you need more specialist knowledge of um, sea fish because some are toxic and I would like to learn more about um, fishing in tropical zones and which are edible and which are not. Um, that is something I'd like to spend more time on, as, for example, um, and it is on my list of places to spend some significant time and learn about those skills. That's a personal thing. And then in terms of professional thing, I would just like to get people to raise their game. I'd like to get people on more advanced courses. I'd like to get, move people beyond cooking beans in a, in a billy can um, and sleeping in a hammock for the weekend and thinking that's the, the be all and end all of bushcraft because it, because it isn't. That's just camping. Yeah, I want people to know more about the environment and understand it and respect it and leave it as, the fi as they find it. One bugbear that I have, and it's a bit of a personal mission at the moment, is I'm seeing an increasing amount of fire damage, people having campfires and leaving it, um, you know, scars and burnt rocks and burnt logs. So there's an increase in interest in camping with fires and all those sorts of skills, but there isn't a commensurate increase in respect for the environment. And I, I, you know, one of my personal goals in teaching bushcraft is to get more people to understand and respect nature. And that's really at the core of bushcraft. It's not about equipment. And so th those are my kind of current goals and they'll change over time, but it's absolutely fantastic question, Ryan. Feel free to ask me that again in a year, in two years, in five years, because I will be progressing through those personal goals. I'll be pro progressing through those pro professional goals. And I hope to see a commensurate um, increase in depth and breadth of knowledge and just desire for that depth of knowledge from the wider bushcraft community. And if I can do anything to help that, I will. So great question, Ryan. Great one to start with. Um, thank you very much. Fantastic question. Next question comes from Nick, 
who goes under the name of Blackwater Bushcraft on Instagram. And he says, hey Paul, what was your favorite part or memory of your last blood vein river trip? Cheers from Canada. Now Nick's somebody that um, I'd uh, communicated with via social media and then I happened to bump into when I was in Canada uh, back in 2014 and we were doing a blood vein trip, myself and Ray Goodwin and some clients and he sent us off um, fantastically. He came down to meet us on the day that we were leaving on the float plane flight to fly out to, to the start of our trip, and he brought us some chaga tea, and we all toasted um, to a great trip with that chaga tea, and that was a really nice and thoughtful send-off. So thank you for that, Nick, I remember you. Um, we're still in touch on social media. He put some nice stuff on Instagram, so check out his Instagram account. He's having a great time up there in the boreal in the, uh, on the border between Ontario and Manitoba, which is where we do that blood vein trip. Um, I've got a few favorite memories from that trip, uh, Nick. As you know, the area is absolutely fantastic. It's beautiful. Um, favorite memories though, the rock art up Artery Lake, absolutely fantastic, stunning. Just, just to think about the people who did that and their history and the culture that brought them to the point where they were doing that and all the, the culture that surrounded that, that was absolutely fascinating. It was an absolute privilege to, to go and visit that site. And um, you know, we, we went and visited it very respectfully and it's an absolute privilege to be able to do those sorts of things. Um, of the river trip itself, um, just the varied environments, you know, from going down through narrow channels um, of rapids, you know, negotiating the flow and just being at one with the river, that's, you know, you've got opportunities to do that. Um, but also the slower meandering bits where you're going around and there's cattails and wild rice and it's just completely untouched. It's not tidied, it's not messed with, um, it's not like in developed countries and I mean developed, industrially developed sort of riverbanks where things are too tidied, you know, you've got um, people doing things on the banks and it's and it's messed with it's just pristine that was a real privilege as well because i've paddled in lots of places where those things aren't present and you should never take those things for granted um, that they're just there the, the just the wild reed beds and the wild rice uh, and all of those swamps at the back of bays just absolutely fantastic to see that and the wildlife that goes with that um, and just a range of trees and plants in the boreal as well. Um, a lot of people think of boreal forests are just spruce and pine and birch, but there's a whole lot else going on in there. A lot of uh, broadleaf trees, a lot of very interesting plants. The time we were there as well, or lots of fungi coming up. So just a just the biodiversity as well. You know the range of life that's there. That was absolutely fantastic. And just the peace and quiet. You know just that absolute peace and quiet. Sitting there of an evening as the dew starts to form and you hear a loon calling and it is just absolutely stunning um, the whole thing is fantastic and then one of the highlight for me i don't know whether it'll be present again when we're there this year but we had really good aurora last year as well and that was fantastic i got some great photos i'll chuck one in the show notes just for people and i'll link through i, I wrote a, a, a trip report as well of the trip i'll link through to that as well in the show notes of this on my blog at paulkirtley.co.uk but the aurora were, were just fantastic i've only really ever experienced aurora up in the arctic before in the winter um, i've had some good experiences with the aurora there i've got pretty good at photography 
of Aurora and um, I brought that to bear. There was one evening in particular, one of our later camps in the trip, we were really firing all cylinders as a group and we had a really nice relaxing evening in camp after playing on some rapids at the end of the day. We, we kind of finished our trip, our, our trip for that day quite early. We'd made good progress, we stopped. We had a really nice afternoon working on some skills with Ray Goodwin and surfing waves near this campsite. We had a nice relaxing evening in camp and then in the evening we retreated to this great show of aurora crystal clear sky no light pollution great aurora great stars that was one of my top memories just that day was a really really nice day um, and topped off with the aurora at the end so for me those are my top memories nick and you're absolutely privileged to be living and exploring that area and long may you do so thank you for the question cheers next question comes from Rude, who is uh, a friend and a, a client who's been on uh, some of our courses at, at Frontier Bushcraft, and he asks, Paul, do you have any fail-safe ways and or tricks and tips on reading the weather as I think it's a vital skill, but sometimes I mistake badly. It started raining 10 minutes after this picture was taken, which I never would have predicted beforehand. And Rude sent that through via Instagram. That's a great example of the sort of question I'd like via Instagram. Nice picture, relevant to the question, good use of the hashtag, good question, to the point, one main question. Very, very good, Rude, thank you very much. And sorry you've had to wait a little while for me to get round to that one. I know you added the hashtag later, so I thought I was going a bit mad that I didn't see it. I hadn't seen it and then it appeared and it was one of the earlier questions, um, but I've got round to it now. It's got in the workflow and here we are. So um, tips and tricks for weather. Um, I think you've already spent some time learning about the weather in general. And I think it's worthwhile for any outdoors person. And again, going back to Ryan's question early on, that's a whole other, whole other spoke. You know, you can look at um, meteorology and you don't have to do a meteorology degree. You don't have to be a weather forecaster to have a good understanding of the weather that's going on around you, particularly in your local area. Um, when I did my mountain leader training and assessment, one of the things that's important in that whole training process is to gain a good knowledge of the weather. And I think that's probably the critical place to have an understanding of the weather. Generally, it's more critical in the mountains than it is in the woods but I still think it's useful to have a knowledge of weather patterns and cloud formations as an outdoors person. Equally, as a canoeist, an understanding of the weather is important. You don't want to find yourself out in the middle of a big lake with a storm brewing up. So that's important as well from that perspective. You know, it becomes more critical to have an understanding of the weather when the weather can really affect your safety. I think that's the key thing. And those are the environments in which you really need to have uh, a real key understanding. Um, when you're in the woods, it's less critical um, and that's a good thing because it's harder to see what's going on around you. Now, I'm in the woods now, I'm surrounded, it's um, late July, we're going into August in a couple of days time and everything's green, it's verdant, the leaves are heavy, there's not a lot of light coming down to the forest floor. Um, it's hard to see the sky, even on a sunny day. Um, you know, we've got blue sky and broken clouds today. There's a lot of cumulus uh, clouds around, little fluffy clouds floating around. There's bright sunshine. But beyond that, it's actually quite difficult to see what's going on. There's a bit of a breeze coming through. I can get the direction of the breeze, 
the, the direction of the sun can help me with that as well you know we're at i'm recording this at about half past five in the afternoon i can see where the sun is i can feel the direction the breeze is coming roughly from where the sun is so i can gain a gain an understanding is that the prevailing wind is it the same as it was this morning has it changed does that mean there's a change in the weather um, those sorts of things can be helpful noticing all the different things that are going on around you but generally in the woods it's hard to see what's going on on the horizon because you can't see the horizon um, but yeah taking note of local wind knowing what the prevailing wind is knowing when it changes is it usual for it to get up in the afternoon is it usual for it to to start off still then get windy is it usual for it to start off sunny in the morning and then as clouds build up as, as there is evaporation on the land or local water that you get clouds building up in the afternoon having an understanding of the local weather patterns for where you're going i think is is the first part you know there is a baseline of pattern there and then obviously you're going to get some variation around that you know what happens where you're going different seasons you know what temperature ranges are you likely to expect all of those things you can find out before you make a trip to a particular area um, so that you're well prepared you know is it likely to be um, very rainy at a particular time of year are you likely to get fog are you likely to get high winds um, are you likely to get catabatic winds at certain times of the day coming down off the mountains? All of those things you can find out. So having a, a general understanding of different cloud types, cloud formations, um, and how the weather works in general, how low pressures work, how high pressures work, how winds can change as, as different uh, frontal systems come over. Have that baseline of knowledge, then build on top of that a local knowledge, and you can do a lot of research online now about how weather works in different localities. Do that and then combine those when you're in an area to understand some of the local, the local variations. So um, you start to quickly pick up some of the, the, the patterns that are going on when you're in an area, um, whether it's um, you know, which way the wind's coming from, uh, which way uh, when the wind starts, you know, particularly that's important when you're canoeing, you might have really still uh, conditions early in the, in the day. You can get out, you can paddle, you can stop as the wind comes up, you can have your, a late breakfast, then the, the, the wind can die again, you can carry on and then stop before the wind increases again later in the day. An understanding of those patterns can help you plan your journey. It can be really hard to predict squally showers though, particularly if you don't have a good view on the horizon and the view that the, the wind direction is coming from. One thing I think takes a lot of people by surprise though and is worth understanding is how um, you can see that there's a front coming through. You know, you, often you get this angular, um, you get two airflows going over in a kind of angular fashion and you get some clouds at the leading edge of a frontal system and you can see those very high. Um, a lot of people would not notice those and if you do notice those you can know that maybe even 12 or 24 hours in advance the weather's going to change and you can be prepared for that you can be, pe be prepared for showers you can be prepared for for worsening weather so those are the sorts of things that i would be looking at you know start off with a macro understanding find a, a standardized sort of local understanding of seasonal and general local uh, weather conditions and, and timings and patterns and then use your experience um, general experience and your local experience to start understanding what's going on while you're there. Um, th those would be my, my tips. I mean, it's very, very difficult to, you know, if you, if you haven't got a good line of sight and you've got the wind coming from behind you, 
and there are squally showers coming over, it can be very hard to, you know, you can have the sun on your face and the wind to your back and it can look to be a nice day. And then, as you say, 10, 15 minutes later, you can have a, have a heavy shower. Um, the preparation for that maybe is not trying to finesse the weather forecasting anymore. Um, <laughs> goes back to old fashioned preparation is have a good set of waterproofs. Um, assume that it might rain. Don't leave your sleeping bag hanging on a line while you go off doing other things, collecting firewood um, to come back in the middle of a shower and have a wet sleeping bag. Hang it under your tarp. You know, we've talked about all of these things before, but they're worth reiterating to the, to the wider viewership and listenership that are, that are consuming this information. Um, don't take things for granted that it's going to stay the same. Assume that it might rain during the day hang your sleeping bag up to dry under your tarp, hang it out to air. Don't leave things hanging around that, that it matters if they get wet. Stack your firewood in a way that will keep some of it dry. Put your kindling somewhere under a tarp so if it does rain you've still got dry kindling. Get some tinder ahead of time. All of these things are important and um, it's just about thinking ahead and thinking about the downsides and removing those. What, what are the downsides of it raining? Right, let's remove that. Um, making sure you're not camping in a little hollow that if it does rain, you fill your tarp and bivy bag and kit with water or your, or your group um, area doesn't fill with water when you're trying to cook. All of those sorts of things, that's just forethought, that's attention to detail. And I know, Rude, you're good at this and it's not really aimed at you, but as a general point, um, that comes out of this, it's not just about understanding the weather, it's also about understanding that when it does rain, um, these things can happen and making sure you don't put yourself in a position where the rain really makes a lot of difference if it does take you by surprise. That would be my, that would be my general advice. Anyway, I've talked long enough about that. Great question, Rude. Um, you know, we could talk a lot more about that and, um, and when next time I see you, we can. All right, take care, cheers. Next question from Danny. Uh, Danny Barrett, um, he's a long time follower of mine, good supporter of mine. Thank you for the question, Danny. Nice to have a question from you. He asks, what do you think of the bivy tents and the nylon bivy bags? Would you use any of them? Um, well, a lot of bivy bags are made of nylon. Um, I would only use a breathable bivy bag, Danny, as, as you know. Um, that would be the first thing. Bivy bags that aren't breathable, you're just gonna get wet sleeping bag, you're gonna get wet clothes, whatever you're in there in, you'll just get from perspiration, you're gonna get wet. Bivy tents, um, yeah, there's potential um, for using bivy tents, although we're very lucky. We live in a very um, innovative time when materials are improving all the time. When I first started doing a lot of backpacking, I had a very heavy two-man tent. Lots of planes coming over today in this part of England. Um, apologies if they're coming over on the sound, but I'm not going to stop and start because frankly it takes, I want to get this information out to you quickly and um, I'll do my best to remove the noise on the editing afterwards with some, with the software, but if you can hear that plane, um, it's because in the south of England we get a lot of planes landing coming into London. Um, that's just the, the, the fact of the matter these days, unfortunately. Um, yeah, bivy, bivy tents. When I first started doing a lot of backpacking, I had the only tent I had was a heavy two-man uh, tent. It was it was robust enough, but it was heavy. It was a couple of kilos, um, at least, if not a little bit more. It had sort of glass fiber poles. It wasn't very expensive. I was a student. I didn't have a lot of money, um, 
and as soon as I could, I bought a Gore-Tex double-hooped bivy bag, which to me at that point was the epitome in lightweight um, solo travel, and that was for doing solo backpacking trips in Scotland. And I bought that from uh, those of you that remember Survival Aids that later became uh, Penrith Survival. I bought it from there and I'd, I'd poured over their catalogue for many years. And when I had, um, it cost me a couple of hundred pounds, I remember, about 190 pounds for this Gore-Tex double-hooped bivy bag, little aluminium poles. And that was great. Um, I used it um, a lot for backpacking trips I was doing in Scotland. I'd, go, I'd catch the train up uh, somewhere in Scotland. I'd get off, I'd hike for a week camp in a different place every night or I'd stop in one spot and I'd go and stop in a remote glen and go up and do the Munros in that area. The Munros are the mountains over 3,000 feet in Scotland um, and I'd go and do a selection of hills and, and get up and the other good thing about a bivy, a bivy tent is that you can carry it with you and pretty much you can sleep wherever you lie down. You don't have to worry about finding a larger footprint. It's just like I can lie down there, I can sleep there and that was the other thing that I used to do. I remember doing some really nice high-level rounds in the Lake District and camping up high um, up near Great Gable and Green Gable and Brandreth up there and just sleeping out in my little bivy tent, my little double hooped, it's like a little tunnel tent, tiny little thing, um, and getting up in the middle of the night, call of nature, I needed a wee, needed a pee, got up and I was so glad I did because the moon was out, it's silver light over all of the hills and down in the valley on either side of this ridge I was sleeping on was it was full of cloud like cotton wool and the moon was on the top and it was just this silvery grey eerie majestical landscape all around me and that was one of the great things that I thoroughly valued with having a bivy tent and um, a little bivy was because you could get to those places you could stop in those places whereas I'd be loath to lug my heavier sort of two-man tent and other stuff up there and as I as I went I lightened my kit so I could do more of that at that time 20 odd years ago that was a lighter sort of one-man option that I could find now I've got a, a one-man tent that weighs very little more than that double hooped bivy bag. The disadvantage of the double hooped bivy bag as I found in some of my trips in the Highlands when it rained and it does rain a lot in the Highlands when it rains was um, you know you sort of particularly a, you know, a June trip yeah longest days of the year it gets dark at about 11 half past 11 at night in, in parts of Scotland and it doesn't really get properly dark so you finish your hike at five or six o'clock in the afternoon you have your dinner on your gas stove and then you've got about another six hours of daylight which is great you can write notes you can you can read you can enjoy the view but if it's pouring with rain the only place you've got is either standing out in the rain in your waterproofs or getting in this bivy, bivy tent where you have to lie down and lying down is fine when you want to sleep, but after a while when you're trying to read or trying to write notes, it, it starts to become a little bit claustrophobic. And so when um, one-man tents started to get a lot lighter, I invested in a, in a one-man tent that wasn't much heavier than my, my double-hoop bivy bag, but it gave me a hell of a lot more space that I could sit up, I could move around, I can get all my kit in the vestibule. My old bivy, double-hoop bivy bag, I used to have to leave my rucksack outside and I used to put it in a bin liner in a rubble sack outside because there was no space inside for it and then if I needed anything out of it it, it was all just awkward it was light for the time but it was awkward so yeah they have their place they can get you to places that you wouldn't otherwise go 
but frankly, if, I've gi if I'm given the choice now, I'll take a, a very lightweight one-man tent, um, such as the Hilleberg Acto, is one of, one of the ones that I've used for, for quite a few years now that I really like. Um, I always enjoy camping in that tent. So that, that's, those are my views. I like bivvying. There's something nice about really minimalist camping, but if I'm going to be in a wet place or if I need a bit more room, I'd much rather have a one-man tent, even if it weighs a couple of hundred grams, you know, two or three hundred grams more, that would be my preference now. Hopefully that helps, Danny. Last question from Simon Cooper. Um, this is by email. Uh, email questions are still working. Sorry if you've left SpeakPipe questions recently. Um, I'm out in the woods for two weeks and while I'm recording this, I'm out teaching courses. Um, it's hard for me to access and download the audio files. I will have a catch up with those in the coming weeks. So if you've left me a SpeakPipe question recently via my blog, I will get to them. I will get to them in coming weeks. I'm trying now to do one of these shows every week. There's so many questions coming in. I'm going to try and do one of these shows every week. I might not always manage it, but I'll do my best to get one out every week um, so that you can, I can keep up with your questions and get the information out to everybody. So Simon sends this question by email. Hi, Paul. As a child, I was unconcerned with enjoying the outdoors on any bit of woodland um, I came across. Now, however, I worry as to where you can practice bushcraft without upsetting a landowner or association. I live in the West Midlands. Are there any woodlands near me I can camp and have a fire and practice my skills? Kind regards, Simon. Well, Simon, that's that's a very common question, um, not specifically to your area in the West Midlands, but certainly in the UK, a lot of people are asking, where can I go? Where can I practice these skills? How do I get permission? Um, and I actually wrote an article about how to find a place to practice your bushcraft skills in the UK. I'll link to that in the show notes. It's very much worth you reading through that, Simon, and anybody else that has that question, because it does answer it um, in, a, in a general sense. It also looks at what do you actually want to do? You know, right back to Ryan's question at the beginning of this session, um, his question about bushcraft, and I talked about all the different spokes of bushcraft from botany to mycology to natural navigation to um, tree and plant identification to craft work to fire lighting uh, to archery to shooting to flint napping and so on and so forth. Lots of different aspects. What exactly you mean by bushcraft? Um, there isn't, one there isn't one law that covers all of those activities. There are some rules and regulations around some of them. There are no rules and regulations around others. There are some things that you can do on uh, public land, on public footpaths, on open access land. There are other things that you can't. You need landowner's permission. So it depends exactly what you mean. You do ask about camping and fires and generally in England and Wales, and most of Ireland, you need landowner's permission to have uh, to camp, to stay overnight, and you need landowner's permission to, to have a fire. In Scotland, um, the access law is different, and look at the Scottish Outdoor Access Code. Um, you've got more freedom to roam, you've got more freedom to camp, and you've got more freedom to have campfires. But that comes with a responsibility, and increasingly, as I say, I'm seeing Personally, I'm seeing evidence of people having fires and not knowing what the hell they're doing, leaving an awful mess. There's a real stink around 
um, Loch Lomond and the Trossachs National Park. They're trying to ban camping altogether, ban wild camping because of the amount of mess people have left there in, in, in popular camping places. And there are other places, um, certainly uh, places that are managed for wildlife where camping's actively being discouraged because of idiots, because of people who are ignorant and leave a mess and, and they spoil it for everybody else. I can go and camp somewhere and have a fire and you would not know I'd been there after I've cleared up. You know, you'd have to be a really good tracker to pick up some of the signs of me being there. And that's how everybody should be in the outdoors. They shouldn't be going around making a god awful mess. Um, and so we've all got a responsibility to, um, to, 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 to keep these options open to us. One of the reasons, Simon, you're asking this question is because there are strict laws around camping and fires, unfortunately. Um, and it's because um, people, landowners are afraid of damage. They're afraid of economic damage. They're afraid of uh, damage to property. Um, a lot of estates and landowners, they're, they're, they're rich in terms of the value of the land, but they're cash poor and the cash flow generated off land can be quite low. And trying to manage forestry and shoots and things that go on on land that can be absolutely devastated by a fire. It can be devastated by damage. It can, you know, gamekeepers can have birds disturbed um, by campers. You need to work with landowners because, frankly, um, it's not just rich landowners that you know that you're affecting. It's all the people who work on the land. You know, if you if you cause a problem, um, then it's all the the gamekeepers and other people who the forestry workers and the local economy of people who rely upon um, countryside uh, crafts, countryside industry, countryside management, um, coppicing and forestry and wildlife management and all these things and shooting and conservation work, all these things can be damaged by irresponsible use of fire and people disturbing wildlife and people damaging triple SIs and all of these things. So you need to have a good understanding of where you, where you can and can't go. And unfortunately, a lot of places you can't just go and camp and have a fire. That's just the law. Um, but you can, um, if you're, if you're um, sensitive to the concerns of landowners, you can approach landowners and explain your situation and say, look, I'm a responsible person. I would like to camp. I, I've noticed there's some litter or there are lots of old tree protectors on your land. Or um, I've noticed that there are kids playing in there and making a mess or whatever it is. And maybe my presence can help deter that. I will, um, I will tidy up, I will pick up litter, I'll pick up old tree protectors, I'll help you remove that rhododendron that you're trying to remove. Um, all of these things can sometimes get you a good relationship with the landowner and you can be part of that fabric of the people who look after that land. But it does take time and effort. Even as somebody who owns and runs a bushcraft school, we can't just waltz into a large estate and say, we'd like to use your land. You have to have a negotiation about what you're going to do, when you're going to do it, how to do it sensitively to the other things that are going on. Um, that is, that's the reality of the situation. Um, when your kids, of course, you can bimble around uh, the woods. I used to, we used to go in, around the woods in Wales. We used to, when I lived in Wales, we used to go around the woods in the northeast of England when we moved there with my friends and we'd go and we'd build dens and we'd um, hide in the bracken and jump in the streams and try and, when we got into doing things from Lofty Wiseman's handbook, we did all that. 
And we never got told off by a farmer. We never got told off by a landowner. I'm sure we were seen by farmers and landowners. Um, I mean, we knew, we knew some of them, but we never asked permission. Um, and they never told us off because kids have got more leeway. Um, they've got more freedom. As an adult, if you're skulking around in the woods and having fires and camping, landowners are going to wonder they're going to wonder what you're up to so it, i think it's better to be up front um, if you want somewhere to go regularly and try and form a relationship um, and there's lots of advice on how to do that in the article that i that i mentioned um, lots of people will camp in places they're not supposed to camp i can't condone that clearly that's down to individual responsibility but i would say wherever you're camping if you're going to have a fire think about the risks of having a fire particularly if it's dry and always leave as little trace after you as possible. Leave the place as you find it and be respectful. And in that way, we'll be able to keep the privileges that we already have. If people carry on making a mess, and this isn't aimed at Simon specifically, people carry on making a mess of places like Loch Lomond and the Trossachs um, and some of the other places in Scotland where you do have the rights to do those things, they're going to be taken away from us, unfortunately. And it's only down to irresponsible idiots. So as much as we can do as a community to encourage people to be responsible and to educate them about how to tidy up what they should do to, to carry their, their trash out, what they should do to, to manage a fire in the first place and how to clean up afterwards. And when it's not just not appropriate to have a fire, there are, a time, there are times when it's just not appropriate to have a fire. When we educate people more widely on that, there'll be less damage and there'll be less risk. And hopefully that means that people will be able to carry on doing those things for longer. So great questions, Simon. Went on a bit of a rant there. Um, have a look at that article. There's lots of advice on being able to do different things because there's no one piece of legislation that covers all the different aspects of what we call bushcraft. So that brings us to the end of quite a long uh, session of Ask Paul Kirtley. Um, just looking at my watch there, I've been talking for quite a while. So thanks for that and limit it to five questions as usual. My voice is starting to go a little bit, but remember Twitter, hashtag Ask Paul Kirtley. Instagram, hashtag Ask Paul Kirtley. On Instagram, if you're going to leave a question, put a relevant photograph up and ask a question with the Ask Paul Kirtley hashtag. Don't nest it in some comments somewhere. I'm not going to find it. Yeah, I've seen a couple just by chance with a, a, not under relevant photographs. I can't feature that. I need a nice photograph that I can feature in the video and I need a relevant question that I can find. Um, Speakpipe people, carry on leaving the messages. I'm going to have a, a catch up with Speakpipe soon and uh, I will see you on the next episode. Thanks a lot and take care. <laughs>